Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beter, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts. Happy Friday the 13th to all our plucky fans tuning in today. And for those of you binge listening on demand, happy whatever day it is. Uh, (laughs) Greyhounds Make Great Pets, by the way, is the most fun you can have without a hand sanitizer. Now, I'm going to be sending good vibrations to those attending Sandy Paws on Jekyll Island this weekend. I hope you guys have oodles of fun, and I wish I could have joined you. And we at Greyhounds Make Great Pets hope all hounds and humans stay healthy, continue to wash their hands and paws, and don't unnecessarily hoard. It is the way. That being said, our resident guest host, John Parker, is with us today, and we'll be interviewing our guest, author and Greyhound historian, Charlie Blanding, who has just oodles of cool historic Greyhound info to share with us, as well as a preview of his upcoming new book. Um, I'm not sure where Rory is. He might be with us. He might not be. I never know. But John is here. So, John Parker, come on down. Hi, Kathy. Uh, good afternoon to everybody. Glad to be back uh, on the show. Well, we're, we're happy to have you and glad you could uh, join us today. Um, so, what's been up with you lately? Tell us about new things in Georgia and and um, maybe some Irish Greyhound news if you happen to have some? Absolutely. We have uh, very late-breaking news about Irish Greyhounds. We welcomed 20 uh, Irish Greyhounds to America just yesterday. Uh, We had eight come into uh, Raleigh-Durham Airport to be rehomed by Triangle Greyhound Society and Greyhound Friends of North Carolina. And then we had uh, 12 come into Atlanta uh, last evening about 8 o'clock, uh, and uh, eight of those will be uh, rehoned by the group I volunteer for, which is GPA Atlanta Southeastern Greyhound Adoption, and then uh, the other four of that group will be rehomed by the uh, a group in Tennessee, the Greyhound Retirement Foundation of Tennessee, based in Knoxville. Uh, had a great time welcoming all the dogs came in great shape. Uh, they were most relieved, no pun intended, to see some grass right outside the cargo terminal as we were able to get them out there. And uh, it was great fun to, to welcome them. It's a little bit of work, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. We've got another group coming into uh, Boston, uh, I believe a group of eight, uh, at the end of the, uh, of the month. We're trying to make those arrangements right now there. Their aircraft got shuttled around on them earlier this month, and they had to cancel the transport. So we're now trying to get uh, get that arranged now. So the the program is doing well, um, and Great. we're continuing to uh, uh, you know offer it to uh, different chapters. We'll continue to give priority to American Greyhounds, uh, and so this Irish initiative is just to get us started because I think in. Uh, uh, once the Florida racetracks close and all the greyhounds there that will be rehomed uh, are dispersed to adoption groups, then the, the demand for the Irish greyhounds will really take off. So, uh, Right, and that was always the plan. I mean, for those who might be misinformed out there or think that, you know, this is superseding the dogs in Florida, you know, it that was never the intent. Um, and, you know, thank you for clarifying that for, for our listeners once again. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's still there even with the Irish greyhounds coming over, there remains a shortage of adoptable greyhounds, uh, and there's any number of groups that can't get enough greyhounds to fulfill their uh, their approved applications. So uh, right. uh, we'll continue, like I say, we'll continue to give the American greyhounds priority, but it won't be unfortunately very long until uh, American greyhounds are in even shorter supply, and so uh, then we'll hope to to uh, fill that gap with uh, the Irish Greyhounds. Right. Well, I, and I know, I know, Rory, I speak for Rory. Well, I always do anyway. And, um, you know, you have done a fantastic job, you know, coordinating all this and making sure, you know, everything is safe and sound and, and the Greyhounds are coming over swiftly and as professionally as possible. So many, many kudos to you, John, and thank you for all the hard work you've been putting in on this program. 
Well, it's a great pleasure. It's very satisfying work, and it's it's uh, it's all fulfilled when the greyhounds, those Irish greyhounds, step out of their traveling condos that they come in, and uh, and put put uh, feet on American soil. So that's that's it's very right. satisfying work, and I appreciate you saying that. Well, again, it's well deserved. Believe me. And uh, I know you have some local news from um, another one of the things you partake in. I want you, if you could share that with us, too. Uh, give me a hint on that one. Oh, um, the, uh, your, I believe it's your lure coursing club, or is it uh, the GPA chapter? I know uh, you told well, me, we, and I got <laughs> we We actually had to, due to our record rainfall here in Atlanta, uh, in the Georgia area, we had to cancel our, our lure coursing trial for the weekend, which Ooh. was, uh, <laughs> you know, we did the ground... The ground was not too soft for the dogs to run on, but it was too soft to put vehicles on. So we mm-hmm. we canceled it, unfortunately. So we're going to start back up in uh, in November, uh, specifically on November 14th, when we'll be uh, hosting the Aspen National Greyhound Specialty. This is a greyhounds-only trial, and we have some other non-running activities as well. So we really try to make it a day of celebration of the greyhound breed. So we hope everybody will... We'll put that on their calendars and stay tuned on Facebook and so forth uh, where we'll have uh, more information about it in the future. Sounds like fun. And now does um, your chapter have uh, something coming up maybe that would include our guest today? Oh yes, indeed. And now, now this is all tentative, according to the, you know, what happens to travel <laughs> and so forth. But uh, Charlie and his wife Sheila will be coming over in uh, April, uh, and we hope. And um, uh, we're going to have a a, a book signing uh, of the Greyhound and the Hare. His his first his his major uh, work on the history of the greyhound breed at our club meeting on uh, uh, Saturday, April 18th in the Atlanta area. Everybody's welcome. You don't have to be a member. And if if folks living in the southeast or even further than that want to come to Atlanta, we'd be glad to have you. Charlie will be signing um, his book and also giving a presentation on um, the title of which is 10 Greyhounds About Which a Movie Should Have Been Made. So um, we're, we'll, we're looking forward to that, and we hope everything goes right so that uh, he can make the journey. Excellent. Well, I hope so, too. We'll keep fingers and paws crossed for that. Um, well, you know what? Have, we, have you and I babbled enough about, uh, about us? Don't you? I think we should bring on our guests. I think so. I think that's the main reason for today's show. So, uh, Sounds good. Well, Charlie, you go welcome. ahead. You're in, in charge. For those that, uh, Charlie's making his third appearance on Greyhounds Make Great Pets, and for those of you who are new to the show, uh, just a little bit of background information about Charlie. He's the former keeper of the Greyhound Stud Book of England and the secretary of the National uh, Coursing Club uh, in England, and uh, is probably the preeminent Greyhound historian of our day. Uh, Charlie's forgotten more about uh, Greyhound history than I'll ever know, and so Charlie, welcome. Thank you, John. It's good to hear from you again. Great to have you on the show. Um, we're going to talk a little bit today about your current project, a new book you're writing on uh, the history of greyhound racing, and uh, um, so let's jump right into that. I, one of my favorite interviewers of authors is a fellow named Brian Lamb, who. Uh, who uh, interviews on the C-SPAN political network here in the U.S., and he's a great uh, interviewer of authors. He has three questions that he always asks, and we're going to get to these each one of these for, for you. Uh, the first question he asks is, what, what gave you the idea for the book that you're writing or that you wrote? Uh, how did you go about doing your research, and, and what's your writing process? How do you actually produce the 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 material that that ultimately turns into the book itself. So let's jump right into that. Uh, what gave you the idea for this new book that you're writing on the history of greyhound racing? Well, probably John. The, the, where I should start is um, where I got the working title from, and the working title of the book is "Please, Mister: um, An Early History of Greyhound Racing," and for that title. Please, mister, um, I'm indebted to Tim O'Brien from Texas, 
Um, Pym is the direct descendant of someone called Owen Patrick Smith, who was the inventor of the first viable um, dummy lure, which would allow greyhound racing on an oval track. And Tim told me the most marvelous story about how Owen Patrick Smith got his idea uh, to, 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 to invent the, the machinery which, which made greyhound racing possible. Well, what happened was this. Um, Owen Patrick Smith, um, he was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1867, where his father was an undertaker um, of Irish descent. And Memphis at the time was not the healthiest of places. So I suspect being an undertaker in Memphis, Tennessee in the 1860s could probably have been quite profitable. But unfortunately, in the 1870s, one of the great um, outbreaks of yellow fever in, in, in Memphis, Tennessee, virtually carried off the whole of the Smith family, including um, Father the Undertaker. And Owen, Owen Patrick Smith, who was at that time quite a small boy, and one surviving brother fled to Chicago, where, in fact, they were, they were brought up. And in the fullness of time, when Owen Patrick Smith grew up, he became what we would probably call now a sports entrepreneur. Um, he ran all sorts of different kinds of sporting activities um, to get crowds in, um, to, you know, to provide spectator sports on the western frontier in the 1890s. And they consisted of um, an extraordinary surprise rag bag of sports. Baseball, obviously, um, was extremely popular. But another great draw at the time, would you believe, were tugs of war. Um, people would turn out in their thousands to watch a tug of war. And we, if we, we, we find Owen Patrick Smith um, in 1906, uh, living in um, a place called Hot Springs, South Dakota, now, Hot Springs, South Dakota, at the time, was um, a, a resort which, as the title, of course, of, of, its, of its name, uh, tells us what, what, you know, what it was famous for. And there were um, natural hot springs, and a chap called Evans had created a plunge bath and a resort hotel where people could go and swim in the, the hot springs, and it was, of course, at the time thought to cure all sorts of ailments, um, you know, rheumatism, obviously, and it was all meant to be terribly good for you. But Owen Patrick Smith had the job of trying to keep Hot Springs, South Dakota, full of tourists throughout the year because it's an extremely small town, and it, it still is to this day. Uh, and the hot springs are still there, the plunge bath is still there, and the are still there. <laughs> if you'd like to go and visit Hot Springs, South Dakota, it's in the foothills of the Black Hills. So it, it, it's, it's a lovely spot, a lovely spot. Anyway, there's Owen Patrick Smith in 1906, and he's got to think up ideas to get people to come to um, hot springs, and also, of course, to enjoy themselves while they're there. And one of the things, he was president of the Black Hills Baseball League and used to go around organizing a league of baseball matches, which, of course, people flocked to at the time. I mean, it's, it, it's virtually America's national sport. And also the famous Tugs of War. He had those as well. Um, he was organizing at the time a polo tournament. And on top of that, also um, boxing matches, because he used to be a boxing referee when, when it was required. But the other idea they had was they were going to try and run a coursing meeting. Now, at the time, on the Western Frontier, coursing was an extremely popular sport, particularly in places like um, Utah and um, South Dakota, Kansas, Nebraska. Every little cow town had its own coursing meeting. And each year, the American Coursing Board ran a huge meeting which brought all these people and all the greyhounds together. And 
they would choose a town somewhere on the western frontier where the meeting should be run. And what it did was to draw into a town literally thousands of people, which would fill the hotels, fill the bars, fill the restaurants, and generally bring in an enormous amount of income. So someone suggested to Owen Patrick Smith they ought to have, a, have the national coursing meeting at Hot Springs, South Dakota. So off he goes, this was in 1905, and he trots around all the various um, big coursing meetings trying to persuade the American Coursing Board to bring their meeting to Hot Springs in 1906. And this, by promising them $2,000 of prize money from the town, he succeeds in doing. And so in the autumn of 1906, the national coursing meeting was staged at Hot Springs, South Dakota, and it went on for 30 days. They had 30 days of coursing competitions on a special enclosure which O.P. Smith had, had constructed on the outskirts of the town. And the, the events included the two biggest events of the year, and they were the Waterloo Cup, that was for 64 greyhounds, and the Futurity, which was a puppy stake, and that involved over 90 um, young greyhounds to run for the, the championship of that particular year. In fact, I read one press report which actually claimed, I think, that there were 200 owners in town and they had 1,000 greyhounds with them. So if you can imagine question. where we are in 1906. Um, in <laughs> where did all those, South Dakota, absolutely where did all those dogs stay? Where did all those greyhounds stay? <laughs> Where would all of those greyhounds stayed? Well, exactly so. Um, in, in <clears throat> Hot Springs was an odd place, in a way, because I've seen photographs of it, and it had several large hotels, which were, of course, to house the people who were visiting the Hot Springs. And all these hotels, of course, were completely booked out, by the, 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 the greyhound crowd, and I should think every livery stable and every shed and every bit of cover that you could find in, in, in Hot Springs at the time was occupied either by a man or a greyhound or both. Quite a, uh, quite a tall order for a small town to accommodate over 150 to 200 greyhounds for 30 days especially. Yes. 30 days, can you imagine it? Anyway, so the, the, the meeting was a huge success. Um, it was extremely well run, because if there was one thing that Owen Patrick Smith could do is that he could organize. Um, anyway, the legend is, and I finally got round to it, um, Owen Patrick Smith is watching the coursing on one of the days of the meeting, and suddenly he feels a tug at his coat. And he looks down, and there's a little girl t tugging, tugging at his coat, and she says, Please, mister, do they always have to kill the rabbit? And this was what you might call a Damascene moment, as far as Owen Patrick Smith was concerned. Well, did they have to always kill the rabbit, he thought. Surely it was possible to invent some way of racing greyhounds, which wouldn't include a live lure. And that's what, at that moment, that was the moment, if you like, he saw the light, and he sat down to try and invent some kind of mechanical system which would allow greyhound racing without using live lures. An, an amazing epiphany for, for him at that point, I suppose. Well, it was, because um, he, he freely admitted afterwards, on, on, on more than one occasion, that this is what actually drove him. I, I think, to be fair, probably as much as the, the, the little girl who, who asked the essential question, um, we find him a year later, after the success of the meeting in, in, in Hot Springs, um, he had been recruited by... Um, the, 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 the good townspeople of Salt Lake City to run the, coursing, the national coursing meeting there. And because he'd done it so well the year before, 
obviously O.P. Smith was the, the go-to man as far as organizing a coursing meeting was concerned, and that's what he did. But while he was in Salt Lake City, he found the townspeople of Salt Lake City very different from the people of Hot Springs. They weren't so keen on live hair coursing in Salt Lake City as they had been in Hot Springs, South Dakota. And he was um, obliged to go to a meeting of the local Humane Society where he was given quite an interrogation on exactly what the sport consisted of and was accused of it being cruel. And I don't think he enjoyed it a very, very great deal because a year later, 1908, we find him back in Salt Lake City. Um, he got together $10,000 from various financial backers, and we find him trying to set up the first Greyhound track using um, an artificial lure driven by electricity, um, which would race round an oval track. And that's where, if you like, the story of greyhound racing really starts in Salt Lake City in 1908 with O.P. Smith and the first prototype of his, what we now call, electric hair. Well, that's, a, that's, that's, that's great information. That's, uh, that's really fascinating, especially the, the, the manner in which he came to the uh, conclusion that greyhound racing should be something that was tried. What, yes. uh, in, 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 writing, in, uh, in writing the book, uh, or getting ready to write the book, Charlie, how did you go about doing your research? Um, well, mainly from um, newspapers, of course, and particularly the newspapers of the time. The, 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 the local newspaper, for instance, at Hot Springs um, was full of, of course, fascinating information, and then, of course, we moved to Salt Lake City, where there are at least two, if not three, local newspapers in the early 1900s. And they carry numerous stories about the development of the track, about the financing of the company. It was called the National Greyhound Association, um, and how they were going to set up the track on a baseball field called Wheeler's Field um, uh, in, in 1908. Because the story of O.P. Smith and his invention of greyhound racing has often been told. Um, you, you find that it's repeated frequently, but the further that you get away from the actual contemporary reports, I'm afraid so much of it becomes a fairy tale, if not to say inaccurate. Um, the dates are wrong, the people involved are wrong, and so on and so forth. But the actual newspaper reports, which were written at the time, of course, are far more accurate and give you a much better impression of what OP was really up to. And how do you access these? Is this online, and is it very difficult to, to, to find them? Well, thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness. There's an American newspaper ar archive online, uh, which one can subscribe to. We have a, a similar one here in, in, in the UK. And, of course, um, you simply run searches on all the various keywords that you can think of and see what comes back. Um, and, of course, you can also divide them by date and so on and so forth. So to a very large extent, there, there, there's the story, the real story, the true story, rolling on your screen in front of your eyes. And sometimes, I'm very glad to say, some, also some great illustrations as well which show, show, show you what they were really up to. Well, I was going to ask you just that very question. I assume that the new book will have the same sort of uh, vast number of uh, illustrations, photographs, etc., as the greyhound and the hare. Well, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, and I'm sure a picture's worth at least worth at least a thousand of my words, anyway. So, yeah, we, we, we'd include as many many pictures as we possibly can. Um, because many of them, of course, have lain undiscovered for years and, and, and years and years. Some of them aren't, aren't of the best quality, but they're fascinating just for their historical information, if nothing else. Um, for instance, I mean, one, one which I found only very recently was a, a picture of Owen Patrick Smith at the coursing meeting, which they ran in Salt Lake City in 1907, with a pair of dogs in slips. 
so um, you know, re- ready for them to go to be to to, to be slipped in, in in a course. So um, Owen Patrick Smith, who sometimes people have been rather doubtful about just what his back history was with greyhounds. It certainly looks to me as he had some quite considerable experience of greyhounds before he actually began to run the meetings at Hot Springs and at Salt Lake City. What do you think he was doing in that photo? He wasn't a slipper, was he? No, I, I think probably it was, he was posing with them as much as anything. No, the, the, the man who, who actually slipped the dogs was a professional called Jimmy Nose. Um, and um, he would have been hired, you see, because of his expertise to do, to, to do the slipping. And these stakes, of course, were worth a lot of money. And um, one can't conceal either. There was an enormous amount of gambling on them as well. So it was something that only the professionals could, could, could... The professionals judged it. And in the case of releasing the dogs, they had to be released level and on even terms. You, you, you sent for someone like Jimmy Nose, who, who came from Denver. Excellent. Well, <clears throat> I think we're getting into a break. I'm going to add, once we, when we come back, I'm going to ask you about your uh, writing process and how you go about actually producing uh, the, the manuscript for the, uh, for the book. Okay. Kathy, I'll turn it over to you. Well, I think you did a good job. Um, Super Engineer Aaron, you are welcome to take us to break. And after a few commercials, we will return with more of our interview with Charlie Blanning here on Greyhounds Make Great Pets. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guests show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. 
Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The GPA, that's Greyhound Pets of America. If you would like information on how you can adopt an X-Racing Greyhound, call 800-366-1472. These dogs are fit, healthy, happy, playful pets, good with children, and oh, do they love lots of hugs. Adopt a cool Greyhound today. Call 800-366-1472. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to greyhounds make great pets with rory tj and kathy to find out more about the show and what we do please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com that's gmgp3 at yahoo.com now back to greyhounds make great pets and welcome back as our mystery announcer said to Greyhounds Make Great Pets, where um, Rory and TJ are AWOL today doing their respective stuff that they don't tell me about, but I'm here, and we have our resident guest host, John Parker, joining us today, taking command of the host chair with our guest, Charlie Blanning. So, without further ado, because I want to hear more of of what Charlie has to say, I'm going to toss it over to John. All right. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, Charlie, before we went to the break, we were going to talk about uh, the third of the what I call the Brian Lamb questions for authors, and that is, what is your writing process? How do you actually physically produce the, the manuscript? Well, I found in the last few weeks, John, um, a, a, a good way to start, get a heavy cold so that <laughs> no one will go near you, and you certainly shouldn't go near anyone else. And that means you haven't actually got much else to do but sit down at the keyboard and get on with writing. Because um, I've been making notes about this for, oh, I mean, probably a couple of years now. And eventually, um, faced with the fact that I had nothing else that I could possibly fill my day with, um, I, I, I sat down and got on with the business and typed the first words, please, mister. So, and then we were off. Um, I'm, I'm not a person to be scared by a blank page. Um, so, yeah, it was. It was. I've I got a good, good, good bit of it done. Excellent. So, no writer's block for you thus far. No, I don't suffer. I have to say, I don't suffer from it. As as a, a, a almost a lifetime journalist, um, like most journalists, I've got something to say about virtually anything. The, the problem many <laughs> people have, of course, is stopping me. <laughs> so what? Uh, once, how many? Once, uh, once ha- I get, go ahead. Hmm? Yeah. Once go I get, once I get going, but there we are. I'm also extremely fortunate in that. I mean, for years and years now, ever ever since the, I have to confess, since the 1970s, um, I've written for the Irish Greyhound Weekly, the Sporting Press, and um, best for reasons best known to themselves, they still tolerate me. And I get once a month, um, I get a double-page spread of writing about greyhound history. So when I'm writing, say, for a book like this, I've also got at the back of my mind that perhaps, you know, an art- it'll come, come out, first of all, as an article in the sporting press before eventually being collected into a book. 
how many words do you produce? Uh, how many words when you sit down to pound it out on the keyboard? How many words do you produce approximately at any given sitting? Well, it's difficult to say, isn't it? It, it, it depends just you know how things are going. But um, in, in this situation where virtually all the material um, has already been noted. Um, you know, the reading of newspaper reports, reading of books, collection of photographs, and so on and so forth. Um, I would certainly hope to write 1,500 to 2,000 words a day. And at that rate, you'll be, you'll be done in no time. Yes, in no time. So all I've got to do is, whoops, get another virus, and we're off. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't get coronavirus, okay? No, um, I don't want that. Wh- no. <laughs> what... Um, uh, what, what do you think the, the size and scope of the book will be in terms of number of pages or, or just pure weight? Do you think it will compare to the Greyhound and the Hare? No, I don't think I, I would ever want to produce another book like the Greyhound and the Hare because uh, although people tell me that they love it, um, such things as trying to read it in bed or trying to read it in the bath or something like that, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Virtually impossible. I, I, I've ruined more coffee tables than, than than anyone else previously known. I think, because of course, as you know, it, it weighs about the same as a, a a sack of cement. Yes, it's eight eight pounds. Somebody actually weighed it and uh, reported that it was just over eight pounds. So, well, wow! Marvelous size with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the things you've you've learned in your research uh, that we've kind of put under the category of debunking old myths. Uh, and one I've always been fascinated by was this notion that uh, greyhound racing started in the United States. It really didn't, did it? It started in uh, England. Well, yes, we had a go at it um, as long ago as 1876 when um, they 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 created an artificial lure which ran in a rail um, and was drawn on a cable by a windlass. And it was, it was really ra- ra- rather, rather good to look at, according to the illustrations. I think the dogs loved it. Um, and the only problem was it was in a straight line. It was um, a dead straight line, and they ran the dogs in pairs in a knockout competition as, as if it was a, a, a live hair coursing meeting. And they ran this, this meeting in North London at a place called the Welsh Harp, which was a, a sort of a, a fairground, a pleasure ground and, um, uh, in, in Hendon. And they only ever ran one meeting. Uh, for some reason, they, they, they never, ever tried again. And it, it, was, it was widely covered in the press even in the Times, which is, of course, the very respectable London news newspaper. But although it was a partial success, I, they had trouble with the hair because it had been terribly wet on that day and the, the, um, the rail filled with water, it, it all ran pretty well. But obviously it didn't run well enough because they never repeated the experiment. And that was that. Everyone forgot about it. But in America, I've also discovered that um, earlier than when Owen Patrick Smith was making his attempts, there were other characters who had had a go at greyhound racing on artificial lures as well. There was a marvelous man called Major Dave Levy um, in Salt Lake City who had invented some kind of artificial lure um, distributor, which as far as I can tell... Um, it was patented. It was a bit like a, 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 the, the thing that chucks out, um, um, you know, clay pigeons. As far as I can see, it sort of fired dummy hares and, and the dogs chased them. Um, that doesn't seem to have been a great success. But then they had another go in the 1880s in San Francisco, and that was greyhound racing, again, like the um, experiment at the Welsh Harp at Hendon in, in, in England in 1876. In, in San Francisco, up the last two furlongs of the Bay City racetrack, they would run um, what we would call now straight racing. And that seems to have been pretty successful. It, it, it pulled quite a big crowd, and they, they ran a whole season of it. But there again, it, the hair only went in a straight line. 
It didn't go round any kind of bend. Um, and and do we know whether it was a was it a was it a rail lure, a drag lure? What what was the what form did the lure take? Well, um, I'm, I hesitate to tell you. It was a stuffed hair that was put on a, um, a, 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 a sort of um, a sleigh, and the sleigh was dragged on a cord up the, ra- the last two furlongs of the racetrack, and they chased that. Um, <laughs> and what, what pulled it? Was it, was it electrified, or did it, did it, was it human No, 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 no. I think they just had it rather like on a bicycle, on, on a bicycle yeah. wheel and pedaled it. Um, yeah. But... Um, they, the San Franciscans, who, of course, at, partic- uh, at least at that period, were notorious gamblers. I mean, they would bet on anything in San Francisco at the end of the 19th century, and they certainly bet on this as well. Amazing. Now, we, we, you know, we, everybody that knows even a little bit about greyhound racing always hears about it having its, its infancy and its uh, first, you know, promoted official greyhound race in Emeryville, California. Tell us a little bit. And the, the date, I think you discovered that the dates are not quite right, that that's always been handed down as the first race. Yes, it, the date isn't right, I'm afraid, um, because the, the original claim was that the track at Emeryville opened in 1919, and that, that mistake has been repeated endlessly in various articles and books ever since. But I'm sorry, it's wrong. It was 1920. Um, the track wasn't built until 1920. And in fact, the first meeting that they held was on May the 29th, 1920, at Emeryville, California. Um, what had happened was that Owen Patrick Smith, he never gave up. He was a, a, a very determined fellow because um, the Salt Lake City experiment in 1907, I'm afraid, came to nothing. Uh, 1908, I should say. It was the coursing meeting was 1907. 1908, um, they, they virtually got it going. And um, it was driven by an, an, a, by an, electric, by an, on an electric rail. And there is a surviving picture showing greyhounds breaking from traps, um, as we know them today, which had also been invented by Owen Patrick Smith. So he'd obviously run trials even though they never managed to run a public meeting. And after that, he then took his idea to Tucson, Arizona, and there they actually did run some meetings. So Emeryville wasn't really quite the first meeting ever run, because at Tucson they ran for about a month. Um, Some of the meetings were better than others, but there were one or two meetings where every race was actually run. But the problem was that the hair used to keep breaking down. Um, the hair wasn't perfect. And so by the time they'd run for a couple of months at Tucson, I think everyone was fed up with it, and the money ran out. That was always the problem with the money. And um, he had to bury the idea for a year or two. And then he tried in Houston in 1912. Um, he tried in Chicago in 1919, and then eventually we find Owen Patrick um, at Emeryville in California, and there was a particular reason for that. Tell us all about that. that Owen Patrick got around a bit, didn't he? Well, he sure did, and um, the people <laughs> who used to make a bit of fun of him, I mean, it's very cruel. Um, they always used to refer to him, o- Owen, Owen Patrick Smith, O.P. Smith. They used to call him Other People Smith because the one thing that O.P. didn't have was money. Um, he didn't have enough money to, to, to back up the experiments and opening the tracks. So he always went hand in hand to backers um, to, to put the money together uh, to, to, to run the track, and that's why he was called Other People Smith. <laughs> <laughs> he ran on other people's money. Well, it really um, that reminds me of the the political saying that uh, uh, the, the abbreviation OPM. The easiest thing to spend is OPM, other people's money. Other people's money. That's right. Well, it, it, why he went to Emeryville um, was that he had a friend there called George Sawyer, and George had been with OP off and on ever since um, Hot Springs, South Dakota. Um, O.P., um, George Sawyer was from Nebraska, 
Um, he was once described in, in print as a, a Nebraska farm boy. And um, he pursued the careers of bookmaker, saloon keeper, boxing promoter, all the way across the West, until he landed up in Emeryville, California. And there he and a man called Tommy Simpson ran a successful boxing promotion business. And George and Tommy had their own arena. And what they found was that their boxing matches were so successful, it was too small. And they used the Emeryville Auditorium, which was much bigger, um, for, for their promotions. And it meant that the old arena wasn't, really didn't have a use any longer. So what they did was that George dismantled the boxing arena and took it down the street to where he owned a patch of land which had once been a livery stable. And he and his old chum, Open Smith, got together and they started to call the Greyhound Track. And they called it the Blue Star Amusement um, Company. And this time, the hair worked. It kept on working. And it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a pretty big success. So at last, in 1920, uh, George Sawyer and O.P. Smith together with some other um, characters who um, flit in and out of the history of early greyhound racing, um, actually got the track going, and they were off. Greyhound racing had started. But that, that's the date. May the 29th, 1920, was the first so-called electric coursing meeting at Emeryville. John, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, we're, so we're coming up in May, then really on the, the 100th anniversary of organized Greyhound racing, aren't we? Yes, we are. We all ought to be celebrating on the 29th of May, because that was the, what, the first uh, time that... What was the track surface, Charlie? Did they, were they running on grass, dirt, sand? What, what, what did, they, did they pay much attention to, the, to the, the racing surface? As far as I can gather, it was dirt, because mm -hmm. that's what they would have been used to in the coursing enclosures of the time. But um, quite often, it, it was what they would do, where they would rake it, rake it and roll it. And so that um, if it wasn't grass, it, 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 it was dirt. Excellent. So as we, as we we're, we're not too bad on time here, but we are rolling toward the end of the hour. Tell us a little bit about how uh, Greyhound Racing immigrated, as it were, to uh, England and Ireland from the U.S. Well, that's all down to a, a man called Charlie Munn. Um, Charlie Munn was an extremely good-looking, dapper, and um, very sort of chic sort of person. And um, it's significant that all, the, all his American friends thought he was English, and all his English friends thought he was American. But he met up with O.P. Smith in um, Florida, um, and Munn brought the, the equipment which Smith had invented over to England in 1926 and uh, managed to convince people to back, back him in what was then known as the Greyhound Racing Association, particularly a, a, a former, a retired general called General Critchley. And they built a stadium at Bellevue in Manchester and using the Smith equipment. Now, um, one thing Tim O'Brien could tell me, and I've seen confirmed elsewhere, is that Charlie never gave poor old Opie Smith a single dollar for, for the patent. He just walked off with it. And, of course, England's a very long way from, from America. But um, why it was so successful over here is that the problems that they had with greyhound racing in the very early days in the USA was, of course, the regulations against betting. Yes. Um, American politicians are fundamentally, if you like, biased against betting. Now, in the United Kingdom, we have a long history of gambling, and there's not the kind of resentment or opposition to betting that you would find in the United States of America. So when they built a greyhound track in Manchester, a huge city, with a huge working-class population, where 
people could go after work and watch racing and bet because, of course, they had floodlights so that the, the meetings could take place at night. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people went. And it was, a, to, to put it bluntly, greyhound racing in the 1920s in the United Kingdom was a license to print money. That's amazing. Now, is Bellevue the first track there? Uh, is, that, is that the current Bellevue track that they're making the efforts to try to save? Yes, that's, it's, it's the same stadium. It was, it was built from scratch um, in, in 1926, and um, they managed to get together the investment to, to put the track up. And by the end of the summer of 1926, because they, in those days they used to stop racing in the autumn because, of course, the winter weather affected the track, which was grass and so on and so forth. Um, when they stopped racing in October 1926, um, there, there were 20 or 30,000 people going to every meeting. So, of course, what they did then was to rush down to London and find some redundant stadiums and, still using Owen Patrick Smith's hair, start up Greyhound Racing in, in London. And that was successful beyond belief. You cannot imagine the crowds that they had. When they had the gray, first Greyhound Derby in 1927 at the White City in London, there were over 100,000 people there. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we think of 100,000 for a football game here in the U.S. is it's pretty amazing, but to think that that long ago with transportation not what it is now, that to get 100,000 people to a Greyhound race is truly astounding. Yeah, 100,000 people where betting was legal. You know, there was no That's problem amazing. they had in America with the law. I mean, one, one day the track was open, the next day the sheriff had come around and closed it. In the United Kingdom, there was no problem. Yeah. Well, Charlie, our time uh, together is is coming to an end. Uh, so we certainly appreciate your uh, your joining us. We'll we'll have you back again as the book develops, and you can tell us a little bit about the your plans for publishing it and uh, and your projected completion date. John, I'd love to. Thank you very much for the opportunity of you know talking to you all today. And Kathy, we'll turn it back to you. All right. Well, again, uh, Charlie, from all of us at GMGP, thank you for joining us and sharing your wealth of amazing information regarding greyhounds and greyhound racing. John, thank you for joining us in the host chair and doing a great job. We'd like to thank our producer, Casey, and our amazing engineer, Aaron. For those of us here at GMGP, have a great weekend and hug the hounds of the world. Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goray, TJ Beter, and Kathy Goray for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.